Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we? Good to see all of you. Today we are um, in our last week of our series uh, called Tearing Down Strongholds. Uh, does it feel like we've been in this series for quite a while? A little bit. Twelve weeks now we've been in this series looking at a variety of strongholds. And I'll tell you what, this has been a convicting series for me. I hope it's been a convicting series for you as well as we've wrestled with different strongholds like anxiety and, and self-reliance and addiction and, and despair and anger. And today we are going to look at perhaps the most um, difficult, uh, darkest stronghold that we see in all of Scripture and in all of the world, and that is being a Michigan State fan. <laughs> yep. It's going to get dark, it's going to get heavy today, but we will wrestle through this. Now, I think you guys and Michigan fans both wrestled through that when we dealt with despair a few weeks ago. Because your teams are terrible, that's why. Um, no, today we're going to be looking at the stronghold of doubt. Doubting. That's going to be our stronghold today. The Oxford English Dictionary defines doubt as a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. A feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. Have you ever felt that before? You ever felt doubt before? Of course you have. We've all felt doubt because doubt is normal. And so here's the thing, much like the stronghold of anxiety that we discussed a few weeks back, um, I, I think we need to start with this basic understanding of doubt, that doubt is not inherently wrong, okay? Doubt is not inherently sinful. Listen, doubting is normal. Can we be okay starting there this morning? Agreeing that doubting is normal. I know for some of you that might make you a little bit uncomfortable, and maybe that's because you confuse doubting with unbelief. Is that you? If you group those two things together, you think doubting is the same thing as unbelief. Listen, it's not. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Because here's what doubt is. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between belief and unbelief. You want me to say that again? Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between belief and unbelief. And so when I believe something, I'm of one mind about that thing. I'm set on that thing, and I agree with that thing, and I accept that thing. And when I disbelieve something, when I'm in a state of unbelief, I reject that thing, and I say it's not true, and I'm of one mind about that thing. Doubt is that space in between. Doubt is that uncomfortable place between belief and unbelief. Listen, just because you doubt something doesn't mean that you don't believe. Does that make sense? And so as we kind of dig into the heart of what God's Word says about doubting, because listen, we can go to the dictionary and we can read a dictionary definition about doubt, but that's what a modern writer and modern readers think about doubt. What is God's Word? What do the biblical writers, what did the biblical readers think about doubt? Because sometimes there can be a difference in those things. And we're not too far off after looking at our original definition, but throughout Scripture, what we see, especially in the New Testament, when it comes to doubt, is that at the heart of doubt, what's communicated in the Bible is this sense of a divided heart. A heart that finds itself trapped between two places. And throughout the New Testament, we see word after word used to express this idea of division or double-mindedness. Words like dipsukas, diachrono, distazo, Dialogitsema. I know those words don't mean much to you, but they all start with the same prefix that begins with D-I or delta iota, this sense of two, this doubleness. 
this double-mindedness, this caught-in-betweenness. And they all carry with them this concept of communicating, I'm trapped in between belief and unbelief. Even other languages around the world describe it this way. In Chinese, one of the words for, for doubting is literally translated, a foot in two boats. A foot in two boats. Another way of describing it, the Navajo Indians, their phrase for doubting literally translates, that which is two within a person. And so this concept of, of feeling caught in between two realities, torn between belief, torn between unbelief, this feeling of uncertainty, this lack of conviction, this is a commonly felt reality uh, 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 across cultures and across time. Is this what you're feeling this morning? Doubt. Are you wrestling with doubt in your heart. Maybe you're feeling some doubts in your life right now uh, about who God is, about His plan for you. Maybe you're enduring some struggle or some trial or some hardship in your life right now, and you're wondering, God, do you see what's going on? Are you present in this? Do you care? Can you do anything about it? And, and, and you walk in here, and maybe you hadn't been thinking about it, but this low-lying sense of doubt has been existing in your heart for days, for weeks, for months now. And so what do we do with it? What do we do with our doubt? Well, here's the first thing I want us to recognize beyond just the reality that doubt is normal. It's this, our big idea this morning. What I do with my doubt will determine the direction I go. What we do with our doubts as we wrestle with them will determine the direction we go. Will we move toward unbelief or will we move toward belief? Listen, we have to understand that while doubt is normal, our doubt is driving us somewhere. Doubt might be natural and normal, but doubt is not neutral. Our doubt is driving us somewhere. Now, just because our doubt is driving us somewhere doesn't mean we need to view doubt as this intrusion to avoid in our lives. I think we can view it as an opportunity toward deeper faith. George MacDonald, a 19th century pastor and author, said this about doubt. He said, a man may be haunted with doubts and only grow thereby in faith. Doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet but have to be understood. And so we can look today, again, not uh, look at doubts today not as these obstacles to get through or to push back or to deny, but as opportunities to embrace and to work through and to bring to God to experience deeper faith. Because listen, what I do with my doubt will determine the direction I go. Will I move toward belief or will I move toward unbelief? What we're going to see today in God's Word, we're going to be in John chapter 20. And so if you have your Bibles, you can get those out. And we are going to learn about doubt and look at doubt by looking at that most famous doubter in the New Testament, doubting Thomas. You all know him. You all know him. And we're going to look at that story. But listen, what I want to do is I want to zoom out a little bit and I want to look at a bigger picture of Thomas and look at his entire life and understand how did Thomas get into the spot that he got into. 
Why was Thomas in that spot in John 20 where he was doubting? What gets us in that spot in our lives where we find ourselves doubting God's goodness, doubting if God cares, doubting if God can do anything about what's going on in our lives? And so before we jump into God's word, would you just pray with me? Father God, we come before you right now and we just want to humble ourselves before you. We want to invite your spirit to work in this moment. As we engage with your word, God, we submit ourselves to your word and to its authority. We pray that you would speak to us through it right now. Would you minister to us in our doubts? And would you lead us to a place of deeper faith, a place of belief, God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so yeah, Thomas, typically known as Doubting Thomas. Listen, I think Thomas is, is, is pretty mischaracterized as Doubting Thomas. And while he certainly found himself in a spot where he was doubting and, and, he, and he questioned the other apostles' testimony, he even says in John 20 right there, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so Thomas says, unless I see these things, unless I touch Jesus' side, unless I touch his wounds, I will never believe. That's where Thomas is in John 20. He doubted the eyewitness testimony of others. However, listen, the same Thomas who we call doubting Thomas in John 20 was a completely different person in John 11. Did you know that? John 11 is, is, is where we find Jesus and, and the, the story about Lazarus. Remember a few months ago we learned about that story? And, and Jesus' close friend, Lazarus, has died. And Lazarus lives in Judea, and that's where the Pharisees are, and it's tremendously dangerous there, and the Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus and, and, and take him out. And Jesus is like, let's go back to Lazarus, let's go to Judea. And, and all the apostles are like, Jesus, you can't do that. Like, like, they're out to get you, and you need to lay low. It's, it's too dangerous for you there. And yet in the midst of that fear, John, uh, Thomas says this, John 11, verse 16. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, listen to what Thomas says. He said, let us also go, that we may die with him. This is Thomas' attitude in John 11. He's fearless. He's bold. He's thinking they're going to go into the belly of the beast, and he's willing to go with Jesus and fight and die with him in the face of opposition. And so what changed for Thomas? How did Thomas go from being bold, fearless Thomas in John 11 to the doubting Thomas that we all know him to be, unfortunately, in John 20? What changed for Thomas? You know, in the middle of last year, our church, we started doing this thing called um, Need to Talk. Do any of you remember seeing that in any of like our social media or our newsletters? Do you guys remember seeing that, the Need to Talk stuff? You know, we, we did this thing where we invited you know, individuals who were struggling throughout last year in the midst of the isolation and the hardship to reach out to our staff and to reach out to our pastoral staff so that we could talk and, and, and minister and pray uh, with one another in the midst of a really difficult year. And I remember one of the individuals I talked to last year in this need to talk uh, thing. I called this individual and we talked for a little bit and he shared with me, he said, listen, at the end of 2019, at the beginning of 2020, like life was awesome. <laughs> Everything felt great. And I was moving along, and, and, and I just got a promotion, and, and life was going really well for me. But then COVID hit. 
And a month into COVID, I'd lost my job. And he wasn't sure how he was going to be able to pay his bills. And we're talking now at the end of June. And he's like, I don't see an end in sight. And, and just six months ago, I felt so confident. And I was trusting God. And I believed he had a plan for my life. And now here I feel alone and isolated. And I'm doubting whether he even exists right now. What changed for him? Listen, most of the time, doubt is not intellectual. Doubt doesn't rise up in our hearts because we read some book or watch some YouTube video or encounter some article or conversation with someone who challenges a belief or some part of our ideology. Doubt is rarely intellectual. So often, doubt is personal. The doubts we experience are emotional. They're experiential. That's how we encounter doubt. Listen to this. Doubt rises up. Doubt rises up inside of us when we encounter an event that doesn't line up with the story I believe. That's when doubts rise up in our hearts. Doubt rises up when we encounter an event in our lives that doesn't line up with the story that we believe. Doubt rises up in our hearts when we find out we're going to be out of a job in two weeks. Doubt rises up in our hearts when we believe we're doing everything we possibly can to make our marriage better, to save that relationship, and nothing seems to work. Doubt rises up in our hearts when we set boundary after boundary to prevent ourselves from indulging in that addiction again, and yet we find ourselves going back to it, and we're wondering, will this ever change? And doubt rises in our hearts. The individual I talked to was struggling on the phone, they were struggling with doubt because they encountered a series of events in their lives that didn't line up with the story that they believed. And Thomas, from John 11 to John 20, found himself in a place of doubting because he encountered event after event that didn't line up with the story that he believed. And so doubt began to rise in his heart what happens to us as well. Why did Thomas doubt? Why do we doubt? Well, first of all, doubt rises when expectations go unmet. Doubt rises in our hearts when expectations go unmet. You know, many have said before, and you probably heard this, that frustrations are born out of unmet expectations. Have you heard that before? I'd also add to that that doubt is born out of unmet expectations. Doubt is born out of unmet expectations, and this makes sense. Think about it like this. Um, my wife and my kids have certain expectations of me, okay? Naturally, they expect that I'm going to get home at a certain time every day and be home and be there and be present, that I'm going to be home on different parts of the weekend when I'm not here at church. My kids, my wife, have certain expectations that I'm going to show up to my job and get paid and then save that money and pay bills, Right? Uh, they have certain expectations that when I actually am home, that I'm going to be present, that I'm going to play with them, that I'm going to help, that I'm going to be there to talk, right? All reasonable expectations. But listen, what happens when I start to not meet those expectations? What happens if all of a sudden I'm not home one night? What happens when I, let's say, stop showing up to my job, get fired, the money runs out, and the power gets turned off at our house? What happens when if I am home, I'm isolating myself from them, and I'm not talking to them, I'm not hanging out with them, I'm not helping at all? What happens? What begins to happen? Well, not only are they going to get frustrated, right? 
but they're going to begin to what? They're going to begin to doubt me. They're going to begin to doubt my reliability. They're going to begin to doubt my ability to provide. They're going to doubt whether or not I really love them. You see, doubt rises in our hearts when our expectations go unmet. And so for Thomas and the other disciples, their expectation was in John 11, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're following this Jesus, and we believe that he's this Messiah who's come to overthrow and topple the evil Roman Empire. This is why they were so excited about Jesus in part, because they believed that Jesus was going to usher in this new kingdom. That they were going to go in through violence and through force and take over Jerusalem and, and restore Israel to her proper glory. This was their expectation. But as the gospel of John unfolds story by story, moment by moment, as they get closer and closer to the cross, expectation after expectation goes unmet in their lives. And Jesus is betrayed and he's arrested and he's at trial and he's being questioned by Pilate, and Pilate asks him in John 18, he says, are you the king of the Jews? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answers with this expectation-defying statement. He says this, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world, And if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. They would have been fighting right now that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. You see, Jesus defied expectations here. The disciples' expectations were not met. They were expecting to go into Jerusalem and fight. And yet Jesus said no. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom will invade this world in a very different way. Listen, just before this in John 18, Peter doubts Jesus so much that he denies him three times. And we don't call Peter denying or doubting Peter, do we? Doubts rise when our expectations go unmet. And you set out in your life for certain things to happen. Maybe you set out and you're like, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to do what you call me to do. And hopefully, Lord, you're going to provide me a job that, that, that provides my needs. And maybe I'll meet that special someone and, and we'll have a very happy life together. And we'll have a family and things will be full of joy and happiness and peace. And then what happens when, when some of those things don't happen? What happens when none of those things happen in your life? What happens when the things you hoped would happen in your life don't happen? What happens in your heart? What do you think? What do you process? And maybe you begin to question and maybe you begin to wonder, God, have I misunderstood you some way? God, have I stepped out of line some way that you're not blessing my life, that you don't seem to be present? And and maybe you start to question God. Maybe you start to question his wisdom. Maybe you start to question his guidance. God, do you really know best? Do you really know what you're doing? And 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 we doubt. Doubt rises when our expectations go unmet. Here's another reason why doubt rises. Doubt rises when my life gets difficult. Doubt rises up in our hearts when life gets difficult, when we encounter trials. Not just when expectations go unmet, but when things get even worse. 
It's not just that the thing I wanted to happen didn't happen, but it's the thing that I absolutely didn't want to happen. That's the thing that's happening right now. Like as a, as a, as a parent, you know, if you're a parent, you have children, the last thing you want to happen to your kids is you don't want them to get sick or get hurt. Like no parent wants that. No parent wants their kid to get the flu or even get a scraped knee or like a broken bone or anything like that. Like that's one thing we don't want. But even worse, as a parent, I think one of our greatest fears is, is hearing that our kid has a serious illness, diagnosed with a serious illness like cancer or something like that. And I remember when my parents found out my younger brother had gotten diagnosed with cancer and how difficult and how hard that was. And I think I've shared that with all of you before. But it seemed like a, like a cruel joke 25 years later when my younger sister found out that her daughter got diagnosed with cancer, her daughter Quinn. In late 2017, she found out that her daughter Quinn was diagnosed with leukemia. And I remember like our family grappling with that news and wrestling with that news and being like, why God? Why our family again? Like, didn't we learn the lessons that you had for us when our younger brother Kyle was diagnosed and then passed away from cancer 25 years previous? Like, like what are you doing? And as we were, and, you know, I was wrestling with it, and I was praying for them, and I was trying to support them, and I was trying to encourage them. But honestly, personally, if I could share with you, like, I was doubting God's goodness through that trial. There was frustration. There was anger. There was, God, what are you doing? Are you good? Do you see? And as we encountered this trial in my own heart, Doubt began to rise up, and by God's grace, um, Quinn is now in like full remission, and she's healed of her cancer, and we're so grateful for that. But listen, as we were going through it, it was really hard. The trial, the difficulty. Listen, you see, for Thomas and the other disciples, it wasn't just that their expectations were going unmet. They were about to encounter difficult trials because they were watching their very leader, the one they were following, their rabbi, Jesus, encounter the most difficult of circumstances. John 19 says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And if all of that was going to happen to their leader, to Jesus, certainly as Thomas and the other disciples stood by and watched, they believed it was going to happen to them as well. It's why throughout John 19, you don't even see a mention, barely a mention of any of the disciples at all because clearly they were hiding behind the crowd, terrified of what was to come. Their doubts were rising up. Again, it's why Peter denied Jesus three times as they encountered these difficult circumstances as, un as, as expectations went unmet. Doubt was rising in their hearts. Listen, when we encounter difficult circumstances, not just unmet expectations, but when we go through real, genuine hardship in our lives, doubt is going to rise up. When life gets hard, I think it's very natural for us to question God, and we begin to ask Him, God, do you see? We don't just question God's guidance, but as we encounter difficult trials and as we encounter hardship, we, we wonder, God, are you good? If you, were to, if you were really good, why would you allow this thing to happen in my life? God, do you love me? You say you care for me. You say you're watching out for me, and yet I have to go through this thing. And doubt rises in our hearts. When doubt, we doubt when life gets difficult. One more thing, doubt rises when my story seems over. 
doubt can grow in my heart when a trial has run its course, when a hardship is finished and the story seems over and it's not the end that I wanted. And listen, some of you might be here today and you're in a spot where you're like, listen, it's not about unmet expectations for me. I've gone through that. <laughs> I've been disappointed. And it's not about going through a trial or hardship. I've wrestled with that. For me, the story seems over. And I fought for that marriage, but that marriage is over now. And I fought to find restoration in that relationship with my child, but that relationship is over now. We fought to make ends meet and, 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 and provide, but, but the, the house has been foreclosed on. I don't know what the hardship is you're facing, but maybe for you, you're in a spot right now where you would say, the story is over. The story is over. You see, you want to know what changed for Thomas from John 11 to John 20? It wasn't just unmet expectations. It wasn't just difficult circumstances that he was going for. You see, for Thomas and the other apostles and the followers of Jesus, the story seemed like it was over. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit because the story seemed to be over. And again, there's no mention of Thomas in this entire chapter of John 19. But maybe he was there. Maybe he was in the background. Maybe he had a cloak over his head trying to keep a low profile. Tears in his eyes as he watched his rabbi, Jesus, nailed to that cross, suffering the most shameful death. This Jesus, who just a little bit before had actually raised another man from the dead. And there he was, defenseless and now lifeless on that cross. You see, to, 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 to Thomas and the other apostles in that moment, the story seemed to be over. And again, maybe this is where you find yourself today, full of doubt. In this spot between belief and unbelief, and as every day passes and you wonder where God is, you find yourself taking another step closer, another step closer to unbelief belief. And things haven't gone the way you wanted them to, and life's been tremendously difficult, and all hope seems lost, and doubt is rising and rooting itself in your heart. And you wonder, God, what did I miss? Where did I go wrong? Do, do you see what I'm going through? Do you care? Do you love me? Are you good? And, and even if you see all these things and you care and you're good, God, are you even powerful enough to change this thing? Are you even powerful enough to move right now in a way? Because, Lord, if you don't, the story is over. Remember our big idea. What I do with my doubt will determine the direction I go. And doubt is going to naturally rise up in our hearts. But listen, just because doubt is natural and normal doesn't mean doubt is neutral. Doubt is driving us somewhere. And listen, if we refuse to deal with the doubt that rises in our hearts, it will um, uh, be a destructive force in our heart that will lead us to a place of despair, 
frustration, increased anxiety, maybe anger. Listen, so many of the strongholds that we've discussed over the last 12 weeks find a route through doubt. So what do we do with doubt? How do we handle doubt? How do we process our doubt? Well, here's the good news about doubt. It's not so much what we need to do with our doubt, but what Jesus has done in the face of our doubt. Because while the story seemed over, it most certainly was not over. Because we know that the story wasn't finished when they laid Jesus in that tomb, right? It wasn't finished. It wasn't finished. It looked like defeat, but it was through defeat that Jesus achieved ultimate victory. That Jesus defied every expectation. Jesus went through this most seemingly impossible, difficult circumstances. And while the story seemed over, listen, as we so often sing, death could not hold him down. And as Paul writes to the Corinthians, oh, death, where is your sting? Listen, by the power of God's spirit, Jesus rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, defying all the doubters, and the story was not over. The story was not over. But you see, the disciples didn't know that. They didn't know how the story was going to unfold. And so in John 20, they've locked themselves in a room and they're afraid and they're terrified because they know that the fate of Jesus is going to be their fate. But what happens in John 20? Jesus shows up, right? Jesus shows up and he's like, guys, it's me. It's me. And he invites them to look at his wounds and to look at his side. And he invites them to believe. And not just that, it doesn't end there. In John 20, 22, he, he breathes on them and he gives them his spirit. The power of his spirit, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, Jesus gives to his disciples. Listen, not only was the story not over, but the best was yet to come. Do you see that? But guess who wasn't there? Guess who wasn't there? Who wasn't there? Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. He was nowhere to be found. Look at John 20, 24 now. This is where Thomas is. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And that's because Thomas is trapped in that old reality. He wasn't there with the apostles when Jesus appeared. And listen, maybe you're here today stuck in a place of doubt. And you have friends, you have family members, you have a spouse that drags you here. And they're like, listen, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. We've experienced Jesus. He's brought me such joy. He's brought me such peace. And you're in a spot right now where you're saying, listen, unless I see him myself and experience him myself, I will never believe. And listen, if that's you today, that's okay. That's okay. Jesus can handle that. That's where Thomas was. Listen, Thomas encountered the apostles, guys he had been walking with for, for years, and they said, we've seen the risen Jesus, and Thomas for an entire week is like, no, I don't believe you. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, eight days later, a, a week later, and his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, and again, the doors were locked. And Jesus came, miraculously, and stood among them. And look what he says. He said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. 
and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And Jesus says this, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, listen, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. This is the boldest statement of faith and the clearest statement of Jesus' identity as God in the entire gospel of John because John's intent for the hearers of his gospel, for the readers of his gospel, was to encounter this Jesus Christ and get to this spot of faith where they, with Thomas, would say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. And, and John puts those words in the mouths, in the mouth of, of the most notorious doubter because that's how powerful God is. And so how do we deal with doubt? What do we do with our doubt? It's actually quite simple, but not easy. It's this. Direct your doubts to Jesus. Because when I direct my doubt to Jesus, my faith will deepen. Direct your doubt toward Jesus, and your faith will deepen. You see, Jesus is a lot more comfortable with doubts than we are. A lot more comfortable. You see, the other day, my parents were in town, and we were out in our backyard and we were doing some yard work and um, I was with my dad and my dad looked up at our roof and we had like some shingles that were sliding down on our roof. And my dad's like, you have to take care of that. That's a serious problem. You, and I'm like, of course, of course. And so he's like, all you have to do is get some nails and a hammer and a ladder and get up there and nail it. And I'm like, not a problem. I can do that, right? So we get a ladder, we get a hammer, we get some nails and my wife is out there and she sees me climbing this ladder to go on the roof and she starts to freak out. She's like, Ryan, like, do you know what you're doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, I hammer some nails into a shingle. Like, I guess I know what I'm doing. She's like, well, be careful. Of course, honey, I'm going to be on the roof. And, and did that irritate me when she began to doubt me and question whether or not I knew what I was doing? Did that irritate me? Yeah, for sure. I got irritated. I got frustrated. Did she have every reason to question me? Uh-huh. For sure. Like, was there a, a serious chance where, like, I would fall off of that roof and, like, have a serious, if not fatal, injury? Was that outside of the realm of possibility? No. Like, very real possibility that would happen. In fact, the second I got on the roof, I slipped a little. Like, it was <laughs> terrifying. But I, I figured it out, and I fixed it. But listen, did she have every reason to doubt me? Yes, for sure. I am imperfect. I am a human being. She can doubt me. My kids can doubt me. You can doubt me. But listen, do we have any reason to doubt Jesus? No. Jesus has proven himself time and time again to be faithful all the time. He's never disappointed. But listen, how does Jesus deal with us in our doubts? We can direct our doubts to Jesus because he's gracious. Look at how he deals with Thomas. How does he greet Thomas? What does he say? He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. He doesn't say, hey, moron, all your buddies saw me and you don't believe them and all the things I did? No, he says, peace be with you. He's gracious to Thomas in the midst of his doubting. And not just that, look at what Jesus does. Look what he invites him to. He invites Thomas to put his finger in the wounds of his hand and the wounds of his side. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Listen, the very thing Thomas said he needed to see in order to believe, Jesus does that for him. That's because, listen, we can direct our doubts to Jesus because he meets us where we're at. We can direct our doubts to Jesus because he meets us where we're at. Jesus wants to meet you where you're at in your doubts. 
And as you go before him and as you humble yourself before him and as you encounter him through prayer and time in his word and time with other people, listen, one of the things that Thomas obviously struggled with was like isolating himself. He had withdrawn and he wasn't with the apostles when Jesus met with them initially. And then he spent eight days apart from them. And it was when he was finally again with God's people, with the family of faith, that Jesus met him there. And so when we bring our doubts to Jesus, sometimes the expectations that we have of him, they're not going to come to full fruition like we thought they were. The apostles thought that they were going to reign with Jesus and conquer Jerusalem and usher in this new kingdom. But Jesus said, no, the way to victory is through defeat. In order to reign and and be um, up with me, you need to go low and be humbled first. So as we navigate with Jesus our unmet expectations and our difficult circumstances, he meets us where we're at and he invites us in and he invites us into his presence to examine his wounds and to encounter him in his presence, but he doesn't want us to stay there. He doesn't want us to stay in that spot of examination. He doesn't want us to stay in that spot of inspection. Listen, we need to direct our doubts to Jesus finally because he invites us to deeper faith. He says to Thomas, after he graciously invites him in to inspect the wounds on his hand, he says this. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Listen, you, right now, this is Jesus' word for all of us. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus is 110% comfortable with your doubting, and he is gracious with us, and he meets us where we're at, but he doesn't want us to stay there. He invites us to something better. He invites us to something deeper. He invites us to truly, really experience him in the fullness of his presence. That's what Jesus invites us to. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You think, I think so often as we are navigating through doubts, What we want to experience more than anything else is God's active work changing our circumstances, changing our situations. But listen, what will get you through the other side of doubt with deeper faith is not God's activity, but God's presence. That's what we're really seeking out. That's what we really need, is the presence of God in our lives. Frederick Buechner, he's this uh, author and this former pastor, He wrote this about our doubting. He said this, For what we need to know, of course, is not just that God exists, not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars there is a cosmic intelligence of some kind that keeps the whole show going, but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-to-day lives. It's not the objective proof of God's existence that we want, but the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle we are really after. And that is also, I think, the miracle we really get. Listen, I can say with full assurance and full confidence that that is the miracle we have right now. That Jesus suffered and died and rose again so that we could experience him in all his fullness. You see, in the midst of your doubting right now and your questioning of God, What you need most is not deliverance from your circumstance or your situation. It's not deliverance you need. It's his presence. That's what we need. And for some of you, you've never experienced that or encountered that in your life. For some of you, for the very first time, you need to, with Thomas, humble yourself before Jesus and acknowledge, Jesus, you 
are my Lord and my God and experience his kindness and his forgiveness and his love for the first time ever. For some of you, that's exactly where you are right now and Jesus is calling you to that. He's inviting you. He's saying to you right now, do not disbelieve, but believe and enter into a fruitful, joy-filled relationship with me today. For many of us, though, most of us, maybe all of us right now, we need to embrace the joyful path of repentance. We need to humble ourselves again. We need to repent of, of, of the way we've been processing and handling our doubts. For so many of us, we've got these unmet expectations and we've been going through these difficult circumstances. We've been looking back on, on how life has not gone the way we've wanted it to and the story seems over for us and, and we've grown bitter or frustrated or, or angry or anxious because we haven't directed our doubts toward Jesus. Why not? Why haven't we? Why not today? Why not this morning? Direct your doubts to Jesus because he's gracious. He wants to meet you where you're at and in this moment right now, he wants to invite all of us into a deeper place of faith with him as we experience his presence. Let's pray. Jesus, we are humbled before you right now. Would you forgive us for our doubting? Our constant questioning. Lord, we know you are kind and gracious to us in our doubting, but, but ultimately, God, would you, would you forgive us for not directing our doubts toward you? And you are kind to us in our, our doubting, and, and you walk with us through that. But Lord, we want to be in a place of, of deeper faith with you, deeper trust, walking closer with you. And so God, I pray right now for, for any individual in this room today who's, who's never taken that step of faith, placing their trust in you. God, I pray that your spirit would be drawing their heart toward you right now. That they would feel that compulsion to, to bow their knee and their heart to you and, and, and surrender their lives to you and, and place their trust in you and say, my God and my Lord Jesus, that is who you are. No longer do I disbelieve, but I believe. For so many of us right now, God, we have found ourselves in this pattern of disbelief in the way we live. And we can gather here on a Sunday morning and sing certain songs about you, but the way we live our lives, Lord, is just a, a life surrendered, maybe not just to doubt, but to unbelief. A lack of belief that you are who you say you are and that you will do what you say you'll do. And so, God, I, I pray that you would draw us to a place of deeper faith right now as we direct our doubts to you, as we surrender those to you, God. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that in the face of doubt, God, you don't condemn us, but you invite us into a deeper relationship with you. Thank you for that freedom. Thank you for that joy. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.